right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and the only place to hear the patented Duff McKagan joke of the week. Jericho, Duff McKagan calling. Hope everybody's doing well. Hey, listen, a guy walked into the bar with a noose on his shoulder. The uh, bartender said, wow, that's a really interesting pet. What do you call him? He said, I call him Tiny. Because that's a really interesting name uh, for your pet. Why do you call him Tiny? And the guy says, because he's my newt. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, I don't even know if I know that, if I get it. But I got to give him props for at least trying every Friday. Uh, he'll definitely be bringing it when Guns N' Roses hit the road later this summer. They just announced their rescheduled dates. They added 14 new shows, stadiums, and arenas. They start back up July 31st in Pennsylvania. Full capacity crowds. It's going to be a great time. Can't wait to go to as many of those shows as I can. Go to GunsNRoses.com for ticket info. Uh, and it's not too late as well to pre-order the NWA pay-per-view when our shadows fall on Fight.TV. It's happening this Sunday, June 6th. Starts at 4 p.m. Eastern, and the card is stacked. NWA President Billy Corgan is on the show today to talk about when our shadows fall uh, and his promotion and roster of talent. He'll talk about the AW, uh, AW crossover and how Thunder Rosa and Serena Deeb have come to work for both promotions. You'll hear about his relationship with Tony Khan, what it was like for NWA during the pandemic, and how great it is to finally have fans back at the shows. Don't we know it? Billy's also talking about how he came to own the NWA, which people called three worthless letters when he first bought it. You hear how he built it, developed talent, and what inspired his weekly show, Power. He's also talking about the NWA's future, how he sees that playing out in this new era of professional wrestling. And of course, we'll talk about his other job, fronting the Smashing Pumpkins. They've been sidelined during the pandemic as well, like every other band on the planet. They're actually supposed to tour last year with Guns N' Roses. The pandemic shut that down, and now Guns N' Roses is touring with Mammoth WVH. And the pumpkin schedule won't allow them to join uh, Guns N' Roses on this uh, just announced tour. Uh, Billy's got a great story from the only other time he's ever played with Guns N' Roses. He got booed back in 1992. It's a good one. But without further ado, it's wrestling and rock and roll with Billy Corgan right now on Talk is Jericho. All right, so it's been a while since I talked to, uh, to Brock. We don't even call you Billy Corgan anymore. You're William Patrick Corgan now. Now, you got to know that's a work, that whole thing with the name, right? I don't know that. Okay, so you know how that stupid thing on the end of the email, you can put a little message? Yeah. You know, like an email tag, you know, hey, go to Bob's or whatever. So I just jokingly (laughs) wrote one time in there because it asked me, you want to write something? I said, my name is now William. It was just a joke. Right. And I did an interview with the journalist, interview with the journalist. And then in emailing him, he was like, oh, are you called William now? Like very sensitive times. And I kind of went with it like, yeah, you know, and then it became an article. He wrote an article about it. <laughs> and then all the clickbait people picked up and it was like, oh, now he wants to be called by his real name. <laughs> and so now everywhere I go, because everything's so sensitive, it's like, are you OK with Bill William? You know, so I got it. <laughs> so seven years later now, it's turned into like a like a thing. And, you know, as you know, you, go, you, you get something rolling, you know, the crowd starts chanting, you turn your head like, that's right. Here we go. All right. So I'm just rolling with it. Go with it. Well, the thing is with you, you never know your, what your angle is going to be because you're always changing and evolving and morphing. So I don't know if this is like your Hunter S. Thompson, you know, serious artist phase or whatever it was. No, that was my middle, uh, that was my middle 30s. That was the serious artist phase. I'm just back to like just hard worker guy, you know. <laughs> well, it's great to talk to you, man, because you always, much like me, you always have so many cool things going on. 
I, we could go either way with this, but let's just start with with kind of the return of the NWA because all of us went through some very strange times over the past year. Uh, I mean, you guys were supposed to go into it with Guns N' Roses, which I thought was a great billing. We can talk about that in a bit, but yeah, NWA, so. you did have to shut down for a while uh, over the last year. Yeah, that was tough. You know, I mean, as everybody pretty much knows by now, I mean, you know, we're past the kayfabe era. I mean, you know, wrestling has never been a great financial model. It works in the short term for a little while, but long term, it's very, very difficult to sustain. Talented people like yourself and Nick Aldis require the the uh, compensation that they're due for being, you know, elite at their business. Right. And uh, and so suddenly I've got all these people under contract and no way to run. And uh, yeah, so we shut down for a while. I kept paying people. Um, it didn't buy me any loyalty, that's for sure. But, you know, we held together. And I think I took the time to kind of think, okay, now if, if we are going to come back, and there were certainly dark days where I thought, no, oh, this just isn't worth it, even though I love the NWA and I love the history. But it really kind of steeled my mind, like, okay, if I am going to do this and I do get back, what is it going to be? And, you know, how are we going to tweak it to go in the direction I really want it to go? And so I think that's been effective. And certainly the early indications are... Um, sort of stronger belief in the product and also now with a relationship with fight, you know, actual pay revenue model for the first time. I think it's all there. And look, you know, what you guys are doing with AEW, you know, the business is moving in this completely new direction. You guys are opening up new vistas that wouldn't have been there a few years ago. Before AEW, I would go in and have meetings in Hollywood and they'd be like, no one cares about wrestling. No one's going to pay for it. If it's not WWE, right. hit the bricks, you know, you're on your own. And now suddenly it's like, oh, people are calling me. It's like wild. It's like, it's this new era of new eras. It's fantastic. It's amazing how that's gone. And, and that usually, I mean, it's a lot like the rock and roll business when, you know, one band becomes popular and suddenly they want, you know, 15 Iron Maidens or we want 15 Nirvanas or whatever it may be. And I think because WWE was kind of the watermark for wrestling for 20 odd years, that it was really hard to get back into the, into kind of the pop culture mindset that you can have more than just one. But now that AEW is successful like you mentioned now suddenly there's a new home for impact and suddenly nwa's got fight tv and then we've got you know new japan has got an american show and all that sort of thing so i guess it's the old saying of the rising tide lifts all the boats or whatever the hell it is that really is true um you reminded me of a funny story going back into music for a second when we were a band circa 89 90 and there was you know the grunge revolution was coming but people really weren't sure you know, we'd have these guys come into town, mostly guys who, you know, they'd kind of give us the look, see whether or not they wanted to sign us, you know. Mm -hmm. And we met with this guy and everybody warned us in the business, like, this guy's a total schmo, like, stay away from this guy. He's like, he's like, uh, what's what's the guy, Marty Pufkin? <laughs> Artie Pufkin, yeah. Artie Pufkin, thank you. Uh, played by, um, gosh, what's his name? I've Paul Schaefer. Paul Shaver, God bless Paul Shaver. Kick Such this a nice ass guy. for a man. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so everyone was like, he's that guy from Spinal Tap, like, run. Right. And so he came to us one time. And we met with him. And then in between meeting him the first and the second time, we heard a story where he wanted to sign, I think it was Green Day, and he, he dyed his hair green <laughs> to kind of impress them. <laughs> and so by the time we saw him again, we'd heard the story. And so I asked him, I said, did you really dye your hair green to try to impress a band? Like thinking it was the worst thing in the world. He goes, damn right I did. And I do anything to show those kids that I'm all in, you know, like one of those type of things. We're like, holy shit, this is, this is real. Like, yeah. Like it's actually real. Well, and so you're talking about with, with NWA, because one of the things too, when you mentioned kind of how people are returning your calls for television, this sort of thing, I thought kind of the idea of bringing back this Memphis 1982 studio style wrestling was really genius because it's the one thing that nobody was doing. And as a result, suddenly 
Power with three R's, I think Power has a niche cut out for it, carved out for it, where I watched a bunch of episodes just because I'd never seen that, you know, since Stampede Wrestling in 87, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it was huge. I mean, you know, we did the first show and, uh, you know, Rock, of all people, tweeted about it. I mean, talk about an endorsement. You just out of the gate. And we were trending number one, which doesn't happen often, you know, at least for our world. Big deal. But let me take that back a few years. So here I am back working at what was TNA. And I'm sitting there with Dixie Carter. I'm allegedly an employee of the company. And I'm begging her, begging her, please let me do studio wrestling. Mm -hmm. Please. Because... If you remember, TNA had a second show called Explosion, right? which was kind of a cart, you know, basically what you guys would do, do with ADW Dark. It's like Dark, more content. Yeah. yeah, great. And I was like, please, just give me that show. I'll do it cheaper than you're doing Explosion for. It'll be more fun. We'll get more social media. No, 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 no. No one will care. No, it'll never work. <laughs> so, of course, when I got the NWA, the first thing I was like, I'm going to do this show because now it's my world. And, and it's been great. And, you know, the funny thing was, I never intended power to be like a constant. I saw it as kind of like a, like almost like a mini series. Like we do it for a while and we pivot to something else. So probably a more traditional product. And people have begged us, please don't change the show. Hmm. Like if you're going to do additional content, great, do it, but do not lose power. Like people literally beg me on the street, like do not lose power. I love that show so much. So it's great fun. We certainly have a lot of fun. It doesn't, of course, doesn't get to cover everything we'd like to cover in terms of what our uh, skill set is as a, as, a, as a roster and a unit. Mm-hmm. And it certainly highlights great talkers like yourself who can go in and kind of in five seconds really engage you and make you care about a match. So, you know, and, you know, we're in a studio setting, you know, it's not a flip and dive type of thing. You know, it's very much kind of four minutes, tell your story, get it across. But it's certainly a lot of fun to do. And of course, you're always welcome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've certainly got some messages from people behind the scenes saying, man, I'd love to come on that set and just let let like let it go. Just, you know. I'm sure your, your, your promos are not scraped, but the point is, there's a lot of people in the business who don't have the luxury of being able to get on a microphone, and just say whatever they, is on their heart. But the thing is, like, I, I think a lot of people, most, I mean, hardly anybody's been around for 30 years like I have, but I remember going to those types, like Smoky Mountain Wrestling was a lot of that style of, it. not necessarily in a studio, but you'd go to the high school gym for the TV taping, then you go to the step and repeat with uh, Bob Cottle to do your interview while the... 200 fans like hey come on <laughs> what are you doing like you can actually hear every voice like that's that's pretty cool man that that's really what it was like yeah well i have this sense memory of watching that you know of course in the 70s and 80s and then i go back and watch it it seems so much bigger at the time mm-hmm. and then you realize it's just like 40 kids yeah you know, <laughs> yelling at jim Cornette, you know, shut up you know it's like yeah, 40 yeah, kids, exactly ah! and then and then sometimes you try to listen to what they're saying and it's just sort of indistinct kind of like yeah. like they, i don't know if they were whipping them up or certainly i talked to austin idol you know who was on georgia championship wrestling who's with us about those times you know and he's like oh they just bust him in from wherever and just tell him to yell <laughs> the last time we spoke gosh it must be three four years ago now you were still kind of figuring out and formatting what you wanted to do and and much respect and congratulations for actually, I don't know, leasing the NWA or buying the property all together, whatever it is that you've done, and kind of creating this brand to where you are very much, and I'm not saying this that you weren't before, but a, a viable promoter and a viable kind of uh, force in, in the wrestling business at this level. I mean, that's that's something to be proud of. I'm very proud of it. I'm proud to um, carry the mantle of the business in this way. It's a very specific thing. And of course, the business is far different than it was in the heyday of the NWA. So there's no pretend there. But certainly, you know, take a step back. 
when I bought the NWA, and that was coming out of the whole situation with TNA and the debacle and lawsuits, right. and there was a lot of kind of public acrimony there. And then I, I purchased NWA, you know, crazily enough, it was owned by one person. You know, it, it was so devalued. He tried to sell it to everybody. Nobody wanted it, as far as I know. He certainly offered it to WWE. They thought it was so worthless that they didn't even just buy it just to take it off the market. Just to have it, yeah. Then when I bought it, Jim Cornette, other people, you know, and I love Jim, but, you know, what the hell did he buy? He might as well have bought air. He bought three worthless letters, you know, a lot of that type of stuff. Sure. And certainly I sat around at one point and thought, well, if I started, you know, Billy Corgan wrestling or, you know, SP wrestling or, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. was that ultimately? And I thought, no, I, I want the history. I'll take that history. I'll take that on. I like the challenge of that, you know. And I know you're a student of, of not only the wrestling game, but the rock and roll game. And as people who step on a stage, uh, you know, let's talk as people who front rock bands. I know you have that feeling sometimes when you step on a stage and you're like, wow, I'm standing where Randy Rhodes stood or I'm standing where yep. Tony Iommi stood. Or It's like that, that hits you. Like I get chills just talking to you about it. Anytime you play the whiskey or something like that, you're like, oh, my gosh, think of the history here. Yeah. So to take on the history of the NWA, to have a direct lineage. And look, let's talk about uh, when Nick worked with Cody for, for a hot second. Cody facing Nick for, you know, the 10 pounds of gold. I mean, Dusty Rhodes built the NWA. There's, it's not even, it's not a work. That is truth, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and at one point, Dusty was basically Vince's rival on the, you know, they, they were head to head and Vince won obviously that fight. But to see the emotions that Cody went through in fighting for that title and winning that title, I mean, it doesn't get any more real. You know what I mean? It's like, there's something about that, that lineage father, son, the history, the sacrifices that people made in the rock and roll business, in the wrestling business. And when you can kind of connect with that history, I, I don't know, it, to me, it doesn't get any better. I think that's why people love WrestleMania. You know, they don't always love the event. Mm -hmm. And of course, you've been there and I've been there watching you. But the point is, is there's something about that connection. Right. You know, when you can reminisce and you see that direct lineage back to Macho Man and Hulk and Andre, you know, there's something sort of really beautiful that that transcends the the normal kind of BS part of the business. Well, and like you said, from a fan standpoint, I bought that pay-per-view uh, of Cody versus Nick Aldis specifically for that reason. Like you said, the lineage of the Rhodes family. And if it was just, you know, Billy Corgan's SP wrestling, I probably wouldn't have bought it. But like you said, the NWA tag to it really did make it something special. And it was something special. I remember that show. And that's the first time I saw Sammy Guevara. Who is this kid? Like it was, it was a great show built around this, you know, legendary lineage in this history. So in that respect, it worked out huge for you. Yeah. And look, people get lost in the throwback thing. You know, even the way we're doing studio wrestling. Trust me, when I'm having meetings behind the scenes now, nobody's talking about the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They want to know about the present and the future. Right. And the great thing is, is WWE getting those big contracts from NBC and Fox and all that. You guys killing it on Turner. That makes those meetings a lot easier for me. Right. As I go, where does this go? You know, like typical LA meeting. Where does this go? You know, <laughs> I, I get the history, but where does this go? You know, like show me the money. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, ding, 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 point, 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 point. Like there's a lot of room here. You know what I mean? And I believe, and I think you do, wrestling is at its best when there's a lot of stuff going on. Right. Fans are churned up. Lots of people talking. You know, I just posted a picture yesterday when there was a, there was an event in 78. It was Harley race versus um, superstar. I think it was in Miami Outdoor Stadium. It was WWWF versus the NWA. I mean, there, there are, those moments are still possible. Mm -hmm. And I often say, and I'll say it here on your, your show as well, I believe when somebody figures out whether it's Triller or 
William Morris or Showtime figures out if they can get everybody non-WWE under the same tent, that event will rival anything yeah. the Death Star can do. <laughs> and, I, and I got no bone to pick with the Death Star. You know what I mean? They are, they are the, you know, it's like, I get it. Yeah. But we're out here, you know, and I'm putting myself in your same umbrella. We're out here because we have different visions. And fans, of course, are there and saying, we support this vision. We don't like this. Vision. But that's great. That's what it's supposed to be. It's like saying, imagine if there's only two rock bands. Yeah, right. Huh? Like, it's, like we've all sat in that bar and had that conversation. Like, who's better, ACDC or Black Sabbath? You know what I mean? Or Iron Maiden. Or, it's great. That's what, that's what it's all about. That's the fun of it. I love the fact, too, and I was going to mention this earlier. You and I will throw Andy Williams in there for, from AW every time I die. We're the three guys, and you and I specifically, because it's a much different level, but we have made it in both vocations, both businesses. But it took a while for both of us to get that respect. Like, I'm sure now you're not, oh, here's here's Corgan coming in again with this wrestling thing. Like, just fucking play guitar, man. Or here's Jericho with this music thing. Just go do body slams. Now we've transcended that to people do seriously say, hey, what's going on with Fozzie? What's going on with NWA? And that's something very special to get because we've had to work twice as hard to get people's respect and uh, to be taken as legitimate, I would say. But once you get that respect, you got it forever. Yeah, there's a, there's a story that comes to mind about that where I was working at TNA and I was going down there every couple weeks or month to two tapings. We do like eight days in a row and it was super grueling. And I was working and I was producing segments in the corner, you know, you know, when it was cold and grumpy wrestlers. I mean, I was, it was a legit job for me. Right. And somebody was, you know, typical dirt sheet stuff. Somebody was talking shit about me and I got into it with one of the dirt sheet writers on Twitter. And the guy was like, you shouldn't be using kayfabe language or something like that. You know, I, I, I talk like we talk like out of school, like, you know, worked or well, you're in the business. over. Yeah. Whatever. Basically, the allegation was I didn't deserve to talk like a carny because I wasn't in the business. And I'm thinking like, I just spent 12 hours, you know, shooting pre-tapes with Abyss. You know what I mean? Like, don't tell me I'm not in the business, right? Like, That's right. Okay. Don't tell me that. I get it. And look, I have a lot of respect for the boys. I haven't taken bumps other than, you know, whoever, Carino hit me in the back of the head with a phone once or something or blew dangerously something I, mm-hmm. that, that's my one bump right okay that's my claim to fame but the point is is i respect what you guys do i don't consider myself one of the boys i understand that line but i am in the business right so this guy was making fun of me right and i got a twitter spat with him online and i said i said you know and the funny thing is is i went in the bathroom and i found they put a kick me sign on the back of my shirt <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I turned myself into, into, into the stooge he wanted to meet. That's a trick I learned long ago in the pumpkins. And the guy completely backed off, and then, then it was a friendly exchange. Mm-hmm. It's like, look, I can laugh at myself. I got a day job. It's great. But I, I followed my dreams into wrestling. Don't ask me how or why. It just happened. I'm here. Mm-hmm. And I love it. It's great. You know what I mean? Mad respect for your game. And you and I have talked about it publicly and privately. Like, when you first started in music, I was like, well, that's interesting. Yeah. How many years later are we now? I, I can't even tell you. I mean, it's that long. Yeah, 20 years. And for us, too, like with five top 30 consecutive hits, it's like now, like you said, we don't, I don't have to apologize for being in a band anymore. Yeah. Now it's just like, when's the new Fozzie song coming out? What's going on yeah, with the great. band? Right. I, I also think the world's changed. Yes. Like people have kind of loosened up with the idea like, oh, you can do more than one thing. That's really weird. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I get and I often tell people like, because uh, I get this kind of conversation. Imagine people drinking wine, nice restaurant. So what's this thing with you and wrestling? (laughs) And it's like, I don't get it. Explain it to me, you know? And what I always say is, look, 
I love doing it, and it, it actually helps me be a better musician. When my life was only music, I started to hate music. Mm. Not because I hated music, because it was like, God, it was like, you know, we have our own version of the dirt sheets in music. You know, it was like, I was getting caught up in squabbles and beefs with reporters, and because my whole life, it was like, that was all I did. And having wrestling and having a family allows me to like, kind of get out of it. And when I come back to them, I'm like, okay, now I'm ready to rock again. Mm-hmm. So it's been really, really helpful for me. And I've learned a lot. Being backstage at ECW circa 2001, I learned a lot about people, about crowds, about how to look at the world that I never would have gotten in music. Because hmm. music is very much just, just get yourself over. Mm-hmm. Almost nobody works heel in, in, in rock. Right. You know what I mean, maybe me and Axl Rose and Lou Reed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Sure almost everyone's a baby face. Yeah. You know, almost everybody. Or maybe Kanye. He works both sides. But point is, is, so to actually bring like almost like a heel persona into music was like shocking to people. Like, why would you say that? Don't you want to sell more records and all that? Sh- like, mm-hmm. as long as I just get myself over, you know. Um, anyway, I'm babbling, but I think you get the point. No, no, but you're not, though. It's very interesting stuff because, once again, there is a lot of similarities between rock and roll and wrestling. To me, especially as a front man, which you are as well. They're very similar because you could be a comedian or you could be a Shakespearean actor. Connecting with a crowd in a live setting, that's the number one most important gig. And whether it's wrestling, music, whatever, if you connect, you'll always have the fans' attention. If you don't connect, it doesn't matter what you do. And we've seen the bands with the lead singers that don't connect. I mean, I don't want to – I just did a podcast about about Rat yesterday and how how huge they were and how great they were. But I never felt that Stephen Piercy as a a front man – really connected with me the same way that like, I don't know, Vince Neil did. And that was the difference between Motley Crue and Rat. And it's the same with wrestling. And it's the same, you know, in, in rock and roll nowadays is you have to connect with the audience. So there are tricks you can use from both to be able to do that. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, I'm thinking of Steven because I know him a little bit. You know, great singer, wrote a lot of great songs. I love Rat as a band. Yeah. And it's interesting because he has natural charisma and I'm sure you've met him through the years, mm-hmm. but sometimes charisma doesn't always translate that way to everybody. Bingo. Like I have kind of a weird anti-charisma. I mean, almost every article written about me in the nineties was like, how is this guy a rock star? You know, it was like anti-charisma or something like that. You know what I mean? But you had, you had the X factor though. No, but that, I'm, I'm, now I'm going to put myself over. <laughs> no, but I can, I can remember standing on stage at, at insecure moments in my life thinking, do I belong here? And, and I would look out, you know, into 5,000 pairs of eyes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And every eye would be on me. And I'm like, this is weird. So I must be doing something right. Mm-hmm. I often think what makes people really engaging on stage is, is almost like they're almost like borderline psychotic. And what I mean by that is you can watch their inner pathos change. Mm. Let's talk about Vince McMahon for a second. One of the greatest in-ring performers, in my opinion, ever. Agreed. You watch, don't even watch what Vince says. Just watch his face. You literally watch the insanity like tick through his face. Like you can see the 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 wheels spin. Now if he's working me, great. It's but it's what I'm saying is you you see the the mental psychological changes. That's what makes a great actor. Mm-hmm. And I think great rock stars and great performers in the wrestling ring they have that ability to kind of take you in their inner turmoil. Yeah, and become something different. You know, like I, I remember countless times. You know, standing side stage at, at an Aussie gig, hanging out with Zach, and when Aussie crosses that barrier where people can see him, it's Aussie full on, go fucking crazy, water buckets the thing. As soon as he crosses that plane where no one can see him, he turns into this old fucking man. He can barely walk, right? And you're like, how could this guy be that guy? And there is a switch there. I tell you a funny story. So I was backstage. Um, 
when Black Sabbath performed like the first time? Was it late 90s, early 2000s? Late 90s, like 99 or something, a psycho man or whatever it was. Somewhere around there. And actually, for a hot second, they'd invited me to play bass, but that's another story. I didn't didn't do it, and I still regret it, but that's that's another story. Anyway, so I went to see the show, and I'm sort of waiting there. It was actually at Allstate Arena, which I know you've been a thousand times. And I'm standing there backstage, and, you know, of course, the dressing room where I know the main dressing room, because that would be my dressing room. So I'm standing out there, and and Ozzy shuffles out, right, with his guy, whoever his guy is. Yeah. And the guy's holding a jump rope. And Ozzy's ready for the stage, and he's got his eyes, you know, black line underneath. And he comes out, and the guy hands him the jump rope, and it's like, oh, he's going to jump rope. Yeah, but he's trying to be cool, and like, he obviously wants to exercise. And it's like, I'm not trying to like, stare at him. Like, yeah. And I met him before, so I was like, hey, Ozzy. So I'm just kind of like being like this, and i kind of like looking at him. And he comes out, and he goes, he jumps one skip of rope, <laughs> and he hands the rope back to the guy. <laughs> and he goes back in the dressing room. <laughs> and I was like, wow. There was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great, man. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. It just, I want to talk more about the pumpkins, about rock and roll too. But, but you mentioned before about NWA and when you're going into these meetings with the Hollywood, you know, Cognoscenti or Fight TV or whatever it may be. And you said like during the pandemic, you kept paying people and all this other stuff. So how, how does the business model for NWA make a profit, make more of a profit, expand into more horizons? Because that's always the bottom line, right? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I've always set a bottom line at 50%. If I can get 50% revenue back in, but can keep growing the brand, I'm fine with that. Okay. Because that was basically the model I worked with the pumpkins. There's the ultimate brand value. Like, for example, let's start here. Uh, everybody knows that the the UFC was offered to people anywhere from one to two million. Right. Rick Rubin was offered it for one million. I know they offered it to the McMahons. They turned it down. The Fertitta brothers, brothers bought it for basically $2 million. Okay, well, fast forward 20-something years, and they sold it for $4.21 billion. Unbelievable. Billion with a B. B. Now, the Fertittas didn't own all of it because obviously at different points they had to leverage for cash and whatever, and that's finance beyond me. But but the idea is, is like, look, if you can ride debt and you can ride a brand up, up the hill, well, then, unless you're in a situation like Tony where you can always self-fund because you you can – everybody's always giving away equity. I don't want to give away equity if I don't have to. So if I can outpace, like if I can be about 50% money coming back back in versus money go up, but I can continue to grow the brand, I'm totally cool with that. So that's kind of my business model. As far as what we're doing with Fight TV, we have a really good model. Um, we're working on additional programming. And then uh, other people are contacting me about other additional programming for other networks uh, calling me, which is wild. That's great, yeah. Which tells me the market's heating up and people are looking for IP. So, right. so somewhere in there, I, I just I'm a little suspicious, and uh, and and I mean this respectfully. I do think that the 52 weeks a year content model is is a little played out, and I do think that maybe wrestling is due for like let's call it more of like a, a mini series or mm. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like for example, like you guys decide like I know I'm being silly, but like AEW is going to do Fight Island for three months. And there's going to be different vibe, different rules. And it's kind of like a different series with different outcomes that might bring in a more of a general audience who doesn't want to watch episodic 52 a week storylines. Mm-hmm. Like maybe you guys take a break from one thing, do something else for a while. Obviously, that's not the Turner deal. I'm sort of talking out of school. But the point is, is I do think there's different ways to, to generate content in this new world that will appeal to different people for different reasons. So I see it as more of an asymmetrical content model. Obviously, the flagship idea of somebody comes and writes you a big check, so you do 52 weeks a year. Right. I wouldn't say no, but I don't necessarily think that's in the best interest. 
and also I would love to go back to the NWA's historical roots where maybe there's different versions of the NWA. So like, let's play uh, the, the parlor game. Like you decide you want to have your own version of NWA. So we do uh, NWA, you know, I don't know where you are today. Winnipeg. <laughs> yeah. yeah, NWA Canada, right. right? So Chris Jericho runs NWA Canada. You have your own version of it. You run your own content model, everything. And then mm. once a year, twice a year, we get together and we bash heads. I kind of like that idea too, that maybe I wouldn't run every piece of the NWA content model. Other people could come in and kind of explore their own vision. Right. And again, be asymmetrical about it. Because look, at the end of the day, if you don't have a lot of money, which I don't have a lot of money, I have money, but not a lot of money. It's really hard to kind of find your balance position against the networks, which is why the McMahons and, and, and the Khan family has been able to kind of balance it because at the end of the day, they can tell a network, we don't need you. Right. And that's kind of the only leveraging point because the network will come in if they if you need their money. I mean, they're just going to hammer the shit out of you, and everybody knows that. It's not like a secret, especially for you. You're you're like the prime investor in NWA, correct? Like this is all your funds. That's it. Yeah, that's what I say. I have a hundred percent equity. Gotcha. People get lost and twisted in that sometimes about why I do certain things. It's like, we'll start here. I want to build the brand, but I don't. I don't need to burn cash to prove something to some guy who's like, well, it's not Dusty Rhodes. It's like, yeah, there's no shit. You know what I mean? Dusty Rhodes came out of a system on a wave that was a moment in time. Those things are not easy just to recreate just because you throw cash at it. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, like, let's, play, let's play another silly game. When you, were, when you were a free agent and everybody knew you were a free agent, everybody wondered, wondered what you're going to do. Imagine I call you and you say, what's Tony going to pay you? I'll give you a dollar more. It's like, right. you weren't coming with me because why wouldn't you go with Tony? I'm not like, I'm not dumb. You know what I mean? It's like, sometimes people think it's like, it's like some kind of Parcheesi game where it's like, if I give you a dollar more, you're coming to the NWA. No, it's like, <laughs> you have to provide opportunity and you have to provide a clear lane and vision. And where the NWA works for certain talents is it's, it's good for their schedule. It's good for their family life. It's, it's a flexible thing. And they can also help me build it. <laughs> and I think some of the people that you see in the ring now will be very much part of the office going forward. That's kind of the business model. Now, whether I can make that work and sustain over 10 years and build and one day compete with you and, whoever's running the McMahon empire at that point, it, all good. You know what I mean? But I'm not delusional. And that's where people get lost because I always say there's only one person who's ever made real money in the wrestling business. His name is Vince McMahon. Mm -hmm. Only one. It's not like the world is littered with like 10 guys who, or girls who made a ton of money at wrestling. It's a very, very tough business to actually win in. So if you really, really want to win, you got to build it from the ground up and you got to build it to, to be distinctive. And I'll tell you one funny thing that I told Tony when we were texting not too long ago. I said, you know, the funny thing is, is we're competitors in the literal sense, but, you know, we get along fine. And he's been very helpful to me. So I want to say nice things about that because he has been absolutely great. But the funny thing I said, he kind of chuckled is like, we're not competitors because we have to two totally different visions on wrestling. Mm -hmm. You know, so it, it, it's like the world is perfect for both of us to operate because I'm kind of over here and you guys are over there. And there is, of course, crossover. But for the most part, my vision is very different than AEW's. And so I'm very comfortable saying I'm going this way. Right. If I can build it and prove it, great. And if I can't, well, you guys were right and I was wrong. It, it, but that's that's the game. It's no different when I was competing against Nirvana. If anybody thinks it's different, like I don't <laughs> I don't get that. When Nirvana was the number one band, by the way, with the same producer. Right. Where the, literally, I think Kurt's three weeks older than me. So it's like, we're the same age, same producer, same generation. When that band was massive, you think it was any different for the Smashing Pumpkins to try to figure out like, well, what's our plan? Right. Totally. Every, everybody runs the other side of the room, gets the Kurt Cobain haircut and starts going, eh. and we were like, no, we're going the absolute other way because mm -hmm. we'll have our own space. Win or die, lose or fail. And 
that was it. It worked for me. So I, I can't help but run the same game plan in terms of how I think about wrestling. And before we get back to Billy Corgan, don't forget the new Fozzie song, Sane, that you can check it out on all streaming platforms and uh, the videos on YouTube. It's it's insane. The only video uh, ever recorded directly on a roller coaster. So go check that out and check out Billy Corgan returning to Talk is Jericho. Let's talk a little bit about, about, about your roster you have and kind of the crossover that we've had with AEW. Because it's interesting to me in a world where WWE is snapping up everybody they can. AEW has a, a huge roster. There's still not room, but there's still great talent in NWA, great talent in Impact. There's some guys in MLW who are really great. And 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 you have these guys basically under contract to you. And Nick Aldis is the one that we've talked about already. So what do you do to kind of, I guess, I mean, Nick is 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 your champion, and he's a guy that seems like he could probably go wherever he wants to go. But obviously he continues to stay with NWA. Not to say like why, but what is the relationship you have that that stops him from going other places? I think to be fair, Nick was incredibly undervalued before his NWA tenure. Right. And I think he's proven to the world that he's a main event guy. So set that aside. That's a given to me. If people don't if people disagree with that assertion, then they're not going to like what I have to say after this. <laughs> okay. Here's the thing about Nick. Nick and I are a little similar in that we want to prove it our way. Now, Nick's vision of professional wrestling and mine are not exactly the exact same. I'm probably a little bit more on the Gaga side. He's a little bit more on the sort of physicality, UK, stiff upper lip side. Right. But we're sort of in the general neighborhood. The thing is, is I don't want to speak for him because he certainly can speak for himself. But my sense of it is, is he believes if the NWA wins, he wins it all. He doesn't necessarily believe if he goes to another company, he can win it all. Mm -hmm. He's dealt with the politics. He's dealt with the guys burying him. He's dealt with people asking him to go out and work when he's concussed. You know, he's been through all that part of the business. And when when we called him about the NW, he was pretty much out of the business. Oh, he wow. pretty much yeah, he was pretty much out. I don't I mean, look, it's wrestling. Was he out, out, out? Probably not. But was he out at the time? Right. He was definitely down on the whole thing because he'd had a sour experience. Even think about when they brought him back. Uh, he came back to Impact for a hot second after I left. He wasn't even on the main show. They had him do a surprise appearance for like an internet segment. Yeah. So this guy was a former top guy in the company. And look at him. Looks great. Definitely can work. Yeah. He comes back and he's on a kind of a, a scrum at, on the ramp. I mean, they buried him out the door. They didn't even give him a chance to get the fuck over. Mm -hmm. So at least with me, he knows nothing's going to stop you. Like literally nothing's going to stop you. You will go as far as I can go or I will go, I will go as far as you can go. Mm -hmm. So if we're kind of twins in that and whether he stays, goes, that's, of course, a family decision between him and Mickey and all that stuff. But the point is, is I really believe in meritocracy. And I think my sense of it is, is Nick believes if he wins, I win and I win, he wins and he wins it all. He calls himself the dealer. That's one of his his names, right? Mm -hmm. He's playing a hand to win the whole fucking jackpot. He wants to go down an absolute fucking legend like yourself. If people look at the hands you played, there were a lot of times where me as a sort of general fan watching, I was like, I don't really understand what he's doing. Now I look back like fucking mastermind. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. You played a winning hand. Maybe you didn't know what you were doing sometimes. Maybe you just guessed, but you played a winning hand. And I think Nick's very similar. He wants to play a winning hand. And he, here's the thing. He controls his destiny in the NWA. And it's pretty rare, as you know, that's yeah. put it this way. He doesn't control his destiny on wins and losses. 
but he controls his destiny. And I think that's attractive. And that's certainly attractive to me. That's why I kind of run my own record label and I run my own empire and I run my own wrestling company. So we do vibe on that, on that account. Talk about some of the other talent that you've had. Cause I know that for example, I mean, Thunder Rosa, we, we use her as much as we can. Um, I know Ricky Starks was working for you for a while, but you've got a whole roster of people that are kind of just bubbling underneath. Talk, talk about some of your bigger names there. Well, right now we've got an interesting, we've gone super big. You know, Pat Kenny, who I'm sure you know, uh, fans would know him as Simon Diamond from the ECW days. Pat's running talent. And Pat and I's vision is we got to go big. We just got to go big. And as, as, as many companies have trended, uh, let's call it faster, uh, more athletic guys. I don't know. I, I've gone bigger bruiser. So we got guys like Mike Paro is like 6'4", you know, 280. Hmm. Uh, his partner, Odinson, who looks small next to him is 6'4". You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> I was watching the ring. I go, how big is that guy? 6'4". <laughs> we got Genocide, who's almost as big as Camille. She's probably about 5'10". I think we saw her. I think she was working AEW Dark for a bit, right? Kind of a... I think so, yeah. Yeah, a silver face. Paint. She almost like a, like a robot. Yeah, like the Ace Fraley type thing. Yeah, um, uh, we we have a we have a, a announcement coming out. We're doing some stuff with AAA, so we got a tag team coming in from AAA. That's great. Talk about Camille for a bit. She's kind of a one of your bigger stars that I'd never heard of until NWA. Now she's all over the place. She was in the WWE system for a while, also out of wrestling, mm-hmm. and we found her and kind of talked her back in the business. She worked alongside Nick for a while as a valet. She was his insurance policy, I think she she was known as. <laughs> and during that time. She got in a relationship with her uh, her fiance Tom Latimer, who everyone would know as Bram. Hmm. And what's really interesting is is in working with uh, him and Crimson at Crimson's training facility. You know, all those guys are tight. Nick Crimson and Tom are super tight. They've really trained her up, and her advancement on the wrestling level. You know, she played lingerie football. She was a college athlete playing softball. She's just jacked. I mean, mm-hmm. she's just raw boned. I think she's five eleven, just pure power. But again. Does that mean it translates into into in ring work? Right. You know, she had a she had a match not too long ago where it's like I watched that match and I called her up after and I said, "Whatever you guys are doing, I mean, I'm blown away." So again, it's a little bit like uh, fans would understand. It's a little bit like Moneyball. You have to find prospects. You have to find people that are probably overlooked. She was discarded right out of the WWE system. If they'd stuck with her, would she have stayed? But I mean, you look at that size, you look at that beauty, and you look at that charisma. Oh yeah, there's a future right there. I mean, you talk about an opponent for like a, a Charlotte Flair or something, you know, like that type of size. Anyway, <laughs> guest booking. Yeah. Who else we got? My God, it, there's so many people. Right? Fred Rosser, you know, yeah, oh, 19 year veteran. The former Darren Young, right? Yeah. yeah, super strong in the ring. Marche Rocket out of Chicago. I worked with years six five, probably two thirty. So that's what you're going for. You're going for the bigger guys. Trevor Murdoch. Oh, Trevor's there now. Yeah, that's, I saw him there. Yeah, now. Trevor's just killing it. See, Trevor's a perfect example of what I love about the NWA. Kind of on the side of the business, kind of in and out of it, but not really, you know, totally there. Brought him in, wasn't really secure on the thing. And we built him up and he's built himself back up to where it's like, he's he's probably arguably the biggest baby face in the company. And he hasn't had to change a thing. He's he's just who he is. Hmm. You know, he's out of that old mold. He's out of that old Harley mold, you know, spit and chew. And I don't get it, you know, not my world, you know what I mean? But like people see that and they get that guy. Because they know that guy. I know that guy. But who else? Um, I'm trying to give away. Not, I'm trying to give away. Not give away storylines. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, but let, let's let's go this way. So, so you have this, this this strong roster, and we know that you have the papers coming up on, on on June 6th. And I love the name of it. When our shadows fall, it'd be a good Fozzie title, right? Yeah, well, that's a very good Pumpkins title too. Yeah, when our shadows fall. <laughs> so, 
is this kind of a, a reset to go and do more shows or do you have crowds back in? When did the studio shows start again? Or are you kind of just winging it at this point? Uh, I think we're going to, George has just opened back up. So it looks like we're going to be able to have crowds again. Great. And so we're excited about that. And we're kind of trying to figure out now how to, because just before the pandemic, we were planning on doing more live shows. So we're trying to figure out whether we can go back into that. Because obviously the thing about the COVID thing is, is because it's so political and I'm not trying to be political, but as you have seen, Mm -hmm. you know, just if a governor gets on a whim or there's a political wind blowing, you know, you might have everything booked out and somebody goes up. No, we're shutting everything down. Shut down. Yeah. And we're not really in a position to take those type of chances. So we have to be really careful about those decisions. So right now, the plan is certainly to keep content coming, uh, pay-per-views every three months. You know, we shoot our TVs out and um, we do our best to kind of plan them out and keep them entertaining. But certainly we're uh, there was an article a couple weeks ago, you know, I don't know where it came from, but fight basically told somebody that we're outpacing their expectations. So growth is there. Socials are up. Everything's up. Good. There's lots going on in the business that is helping us on the on the all tides lift the boats thing. So, yeah, we're just trying to get serious and make sure we're kind of we're standing where we want to be standing when things kick up another gear. You know, I always say walk before you can run. You know, there's lots of things I want to do, but I think if you're going to ask somebody for their time, and in, in this case, we're asking them for money to watch our show on Fight, you know, you have to be solid there. Right. I, I feel really good that the roster at least shows everyone that we're damn serious about who we have there. You know, we got great talkers. And I'm very proud, um, you know, spinning off it sideways for a second. I'm very proud that somebody like Eddie Kingston, the work he did on NWA had everything to do with him getting an opportunity with aw maybe where he wouldn't have gotten that opportunity right. he certainly deserved it. it's not taking anything away from eddie but people seeing him on on power was like god damn that guy you know it was like he's magnetic you know mm-hmm. and so i'm very proud of that stuff uh sammy obviously worked with ricky starks gosh so many talents that that came through all right mr corgan let's run down the when our shadows fall pay-per-view card the card for the pay-per-view on june 6th on pay-per-view is a uh, Trevor Murdoch versus Nick Aldis for the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship. Camille versus Serena D from AEW. Oh, okay. Serena is yeah. the champion uh, for the NWA Women's uh, Title. Thunder Rosa and Melina versus Taryn Terrell and Kylie Ray. Hmm. Tyrus with Austin Idol versus Pope in a grudge match. We have a sort of a Lucha Scrum <laughs> single elimination with uh, Mecca Wolf and Bestia Six 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 versus Fred Rosser and uh, Marche Rocket. Versus Sal Renaro and Slice Boogie versus Odinson and Peril. This is all off the top of your head. That's great. Yes, it is. <laughs> I got to get my Paul Heyman in gear here. And there's, uh, I know there's one other match I think I'm overlooking. When you talk about using like uh, Serena Deeb and like I said, we use Thunder Rosa, is that just a matter of picking up the phone and calling Tony and figuring out dates? Well, that was an interesting thing because we had a situation where um, – Serena, before she came into AW, was supposed to do a date with us Uh. for the title. And that date was sort of still on the books and it didn't happen. And there was a situation where we still wanted Serena to come in and do the date if possible. So I reached out to Tony and he was totally cool with it. And I said, I got an idea I'd like to run by you if you're cool with it. And I said, I'd like to put the title on Serena. I think she's more than worthy. I mean, Mm -hmm. she's fantastic right now. I've never seen her better. And he said, okay, I like it. That's kind of interesting. And I said, how about having Thunder Rosa chase her back in AEW? And he liked that. And the great part of that was then Thunder Rosa got over with the AEW fans. And of course, everything that's happened from that. Right. So it turned out to be a boon, not only for Thunder Rosa, but a great way to keep the NWA name kind of in the flow a little bit while we were down. And so I'm very appreciative of Tony doing that. He's been so great to work with on that level. 
And I hope he can do more. You know, he's been very generous about that. And we've talked about stuff, just nothing's really clicked. And I'm going to say it here because it's not, it's not nothing too behind the scenes, but it's like, I still want to see that Nick Cody three. Mm, yeah. That's just too good. There's just too much there. And I know Cody's got a lot going on. I mean, he's got a lot going on, including a, a baby, but, um, and God bless them. But personally, I just want to see that one more time. I just think it's just too good because there's something I, I'd be curious just if you don't mind me asking you a question, but like, you know, there's certain opponents for certain guys. Yeah. It's just a click thing. Yeah. And there's something about Nick and Cody. Maybe it's their personalities in real life, mm -hmm. but something in the ring, man, there's just sparks there. You get that. You know, you, you have that connection. Like you who, said, I'm, if you don't mind me asking, who was that for you? Um, there's a lot. I mean, I had that with Sean Michaels. I had it with rock. I have it with Moxley. Just a few legends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and future legend. <laughs> yeah. And I can't wait for uh, for what we're doing now for Jericho Omega 3. Because the first two were both, you know, I think the second one's a little bit underrated because people forget just how monumental that match was in Las Vegas. But both of those matches we had are, are classics that not just uh, were good in the ring, but also kind of changed the course of, of the business from, you know, a historical standpoint as well. So I think that's a big one. Okay. You might get, if I just interject one thing, <laughs> please. Okay. I was thinking about it cause I knew I was going to talk to you and I was thinking back kind of like in my mind, cause it was like, you know, sometimes you get an idea, but you can't kind of get there. Right. And I had this like aha moment about you. I was a little late to understand the trend of what became, you know, the AEW movement, mm -hmm. you know, there obviously was the being the elite show. And I even remember when Cody came into TNA for a hot minute, when I was there, right. The crowd reaction was like so other level. And I remember I was standing next to somebody like, oh, it's because he's been on WWE. And I was like, no, 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 no. No, that's not it. Yeah. There's something going on here. There's, you know, you know, we call it pop and wrestling, but like, you know, you know, it from rock stuff, there's a certain sound the crowd makes when it's like, it's different. Yeah. When a, when a legend steps on the stage, like, a, like an Aussie, there's a certain ooh there that you don't get like, hey, you know? Yeah. Right, right, right. And I, so I was tracing back this route and I was like, okay. If this is like a really a true revolution in wrestling, which it appears now it is, historically, it will go down as a really true left turn. Mm -hmm. Many people didn't see coming, including myself. I just thought it was like another ripple where it's become a thing. Okay. Just much like grunge was. You know, a lot of people mm -hmm. in the beginning thought it was a ripple and it turned into a thing. Okay. So I was tracing it back in my mind and I was like, where did this actually really start? And that it was like I had this aha moment. I was like, I got it. It was when you showed up on Raw. That, that was like the Raw's Jericho night. Hmm. Do you remember that? Oh, you way back in, in Chicago with The Rock? Yeah, I think it was when you – when it was like a big deal, like when you finally came over and you were on – Oh, the debut in 1999. Right. Right. Because ECW was hot but never kind of going to get there. And there was a lot of financial issues and I knew a lot of stuff behind the scenes. So it was like – it was kind of like the engine that could but it was stalling up the hill. Because mm -hmm. it was PJ Polacco, just incredible, got me reading dirt sheets back then, you know. Yeah. So there I'm reading my Wrestling Observer, you know what I mean? Yeah. And they're talking about, you know – Meltzer and his seven star matches and all that stuff. And of course he was very high on you. And I remembered like I had trouble because I wasn't in the business understanding the difference between like, let's call it a, a more um, illuminated behind the scenes perspective of who was a great worker, who was a great talent versus the way they were being portrayed on television. And so you're in that time in the dirt sheets, you're showing up on raw was sort of like, it was seen as like this kind of like this break in the, breaking the wall mm -hmm. that wwe was finally acknowledging that something was happening and that bringing you in and bringing uh eddie guerrero in was an acknowledgement that you guys were much more valuable than had historically been right because you guys were always right. cast as like cruiserweight guys yeah i'm talking about back then when i didn't really know the business so i'm just like a guy watching the shows 
And I remember you guys getting over and then not, never understanding how why we'd book guys a certain way and understand the politics of all that, right? Mm-hmm. So I, when I trace back this revolution, I actually think it started with you showing up on Raw. Hmm, interesting. It was like the beginning. It's like when the wall first crumbles, you know what I yeah. mean? <laughs> yeah. Because your reaction at that point, and I'm saying this respectfully, was far greater than my public understanding of who you were. That's a great point. It, and it reminded me, and of course I knew what was going on because I was there, but I'm saying when Nirvana first showed up on MTV, you were like, uh-oh, something's happening. Mm. And, and now we are here 25 years later. It's like, it's very obvious what happened. Sure. But at the time, it's kind of like, will they, won't they, should they, shouldn't they? Yeah, of course. It's, it's much easier looking back on it. Uh, and, and like, like for example, if you're, you're switching over to Nirvana, when Nirvana first came out, I was staunchly against them because I was such a heavy metal guy. And I hated the fact that they were squeezing out. Oh, we 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 killed we killed hair metal. All, we not just hair, it. You also killed Iron Maiden for a while. Judas Priest, like Metallica and Guns N' Roses, barely squeaked through. But that was it. Hey, you remember Metallica wearing makeup? <laughs> oh my gosh, I know, and, and trying to look like you guys. You know what I mean? Like, who's this? Billy Corgan or, or Lars Ulrich? What the hell's going on? So I was totally against it. But looking back now. All of them, and we've talked about this before, like not just Nirvana, but, but, but your band and all the bands, like Soundgarden, like it's heavy metal. You know, I mean, Nirvana's a little bit more punk, but it's still metal. It's, it's still got that same vibe and groove and angst to it. And I was the perfect age for that. You know, I was 20 years old, 21 years old, but I refused to get into it. But looking back at it now, 30 years later, or sorry, 20, no, 30 years later. 30 years later. It's, it's gosh, 30 years later. It's so obvious how great that scene was. And that's what I'm saying is I, and that's why I brought it up is I was watching it happen in real time. I mean, I was watching the night you showed up on raw yeah, and you know, Raw's Jericho and the whole thing. And I, I kind of didn't get it. Right. And it wasn't because I didn't think you were great. It's just, I had been trained as a, as a viewer to not view you in the same light as taker or stone cold, you know, like there was a, right. You were like a second class citizen in the way they booked those shows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, they throw you guys in a lot of horse angles and, mm-hmm. You know, you guys get over, they, you, get, you get over on some crazy match. I remember Ray Mysterio back then just doing crazy shit on TV and then nothing would happen. Yeah. They just mixed the deck and you guys would just, it was like, it seemed like nobody ever went upward. Right. Right. Like nobody ever seemed to escape. It was like escape pod. There was no escape pod for you guys. You were, for, you were, ever, you were forever trapped in the mid card, basically. The proverbial glass ceiling, which was, was so true. And so when you showed up on raw, it was kind of like, I don't understand what's happening, <laughs> but the pop was there. Because the fans knew. Because the fans always know. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I remember having this conversation with Pete Townsend once where I was kind of bemoaning, like, you know, trying to deal with crowds. And, and he goes, no, it's your fucking job to get them. It's not their job. Mm-hmm. It's your job to get them. And he goes, and when you do, you'll fucking know. So he was saying it's your job to understand the crowd and what they're wanting? No, he, he was saying it's like. The cr- it's not the crowds to figure out who's next. Ah, gotcha. It's your job to tell them who's next. And when you, and when you get it right, they'll f- tell you. Yeah. yeah, yeah they'll yeah. tell you. Like, you don't have to be like, am I in the right place? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I think back to some of the pops we would get when we'd come out in those days, and it was just insane. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we put on old recordings because we're going to release some old stuff. The sound was just like a jet engine. Mm-hmm. And you've had those moments, right? Where you just, just like, Fuck. sure. And it was great. Like when Edge came back, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I was there. I, I didn't know he was going to come back. But when Edge showed back up like a year and a half ago or so on SummerSlam, I just happened to be there in Toronto for the show. And when he walked through that curtain, that pop 
that genuine thing that happens only for certain people at certain times. Yeah. Not always the same person. You know, I mean, at the right moment, right time. So it's pretty cool because I trace it always back and I was like, and Jericho, he was the, he was the guy like, and, and obviously all respect to Eddie and Dean Malenko, you guys proved something that no one thought was provable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the fans rallied in behind it and said, we want this, we want this. And they just kept hammering that wall down and finally it came down and here we are. As we start to, to wind down, I, we got to do a whole show about the pumpkins next time, but I want to talk to you just a little bit about, about getting the band kind of back out there. Cause now it's, it's great to see that every we on a daily basis, new bands are announcing tours and, and, and thankfully kind of guys are getting back out there again. What's the plan for, for the Smashing Pumpkins at this point? Well, right now we're recording a 33 song triple album. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Which is the sequel, which is the sequel to uh, our album Melancholy and our sequel to our album Machina. So it's like the third of a trilogy. Okay, gotcha. Those were sort of made like musicals with stories and stuff. Yeah. And so this is the third in the trilogy, which is pretty crazy to try to do. So actually, when we're, when we're done here, I'm going to go over here in the next room and, and work on this stuff. So we're, we're pretty deep in that. We do have some shows booked in the fall, but they haven't officially been reannounced. Mm-hmm. But that looks like it's going to happen. The problem is, is it's totally the Wild West now. And you're going to be in this situation any second. Like, you're going to go, yeah, I'd like to tour. And they're going to go, well, there's no buses. Right. Yeah. Well, there's no crew. Or, um, well, unless everybody wants to do X, Y, and Z in this time and health thing, you're not going to be able to. So it's it's going to be the Wild West for about six or nine months. So I think in our position, our general feeling is to kind of step back and wait a little bit and let it, let it sort itself out. Because if you're, and I say this respectfully, if you're Metallica, they're going to bend over backwards to make sure you're taken care of. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of bands in this business. They're going to ask you to figure it out. Yeah. And I'm not ready to be the guinea pig mm-hmm. to figure out how it's not going to work or how it's going to work. And I will say also respectfully that I think the jury's still out and whether or not, you know, 18,000 people are going to show up and want to be in an arena for three hours, right? you know, on a health level. I think the jury's still out on that. And now if you're a Metallica fan, you're like, well, yeah, I'm going to go. But there's a lot of bands where it's like the decision of going, not going might be a health consideration. Well, I think too, the, the bigger the band is, and, and and I say this respect to you, you forget sometimes just how big Smashing Pumpkins are. Like you guys still, well, you guys can go do an arena tour tomorrow and that's the level that you're at. But it's like for us like at a club level, for example, or, or smaller theaters, you know, thousand fifteen hundred cap those types of tours seem to be more apt to be running when you're talking about arena level tours or even like beyond like stones or guns and roses uh you know those type of level stadium shows i still can't believe this motley crew def leopard thing hasn't been canceled yet because how the hell can you go play a stadium tour at this point in time and and maybe it'll still work but it seems like the bigger the venues the the harder it would be to to open them up all the way which is think of it strictly as a risk thing right i asked somebody once in the business how much it costs to put on a stadium show, just the cost. I'm not even talking about the cost of the band showing up to run the building, million dollars mm. flat mm-hmm. to run like Soldier Field in Chicago, million dollars flat. Boom. Right. Like rain or shine. One ticket sold or 100,000 million bucks. So that's a lot of people are going to have a hard time pulling that trigger if they might take a $400,000 bath right. on the cash. So that's where you're going to see people. Now, if it's Metallica, and they're going to do the black album, like something that's just like guaranteed. Well, yeah, because then they're going to print cash. Yeah, <laughs> right. But it flows the other way, too. I'd say from the A minus level of the business down to like, let's call it the C level of business. And again, not being disrespectful, just where people draw. 
I think you're going to have a lot of issues there. And part of it's just going to be logistics. Mm-hmm. Like li- I literally, I'll call people and they go, good luck in a bus. Good luck in a truck. Now we have gas shortages in the Southeast right now. So I don't know. I just don't want to be a guinea pig in that. Talking about the tour that was going to happen. You had a little teary eye earlier. We talked about smashing pumpkins and guns and roses. Cause once again, what a great, it's like, that's the, that's the bill that I didn't know I needed until it was announced. I was like, that's a great bill. What a, what a great idea to put you, you these two bands together. Well, I credit, I mean, I, I can't say it's Axel making all the decisions, but I've always assumed that about guns and to Axel's credit, and I'm going to give him credit, even if he doesn't deserve it, he's always had great opening bands for guns. Mm-hmm. Some bands really don't want a great opening band. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's an insecurity there. I mean, we've been we've been put up for tours and told they don't want you because you guys are too good. Yeah, that's amazing, right? They're scared of you guys blowing them off the stage. I mean, I haven't heard that. So that's not like I'm making that up. Mm-hmm. Guns has never been afraid. Like, a gun's attitude, like, bring it the f- gone. We want the best, you know. So God bless them on that. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't work out when they did the, the, did the reschedule. But I was looking forward to it. We actually played with them in 92. Um, I don't know if you know this story. I can tell this story if you want to hear it. Sure, please. So we were, we were booked for um, three shows, one in Oklahoma City and two in uh, in Chicago at, at Allstate. We did the first show in Oklahoma City and we were booed for 45 minutes straight. <laughs> I, I mean, straight. This is, ni- this is Guns 92. <laughs> right. Like Axel uh, in the bicycle shorts. Right. Of course. Yeah. So we were booed for 45 minutes straight. Like just a constant, ooh, like a, like a note. And, and I got so sick of it that about three quarters of the way through the show, I, I, I shushed the crowd, you know, and you've worked heel. So it's like, it's hard to shush the crowd, but you can get them to come down a little bit. Right. I got them to come down and I said, I know why you're all booing. And they got a little quieter. And I said, it's because you're all living on stolen Indian land. <laughs> and that exact moment, somebody threw a quarter from the balcony that hit Jimmy Chamberlain in the back of the head. Boom. So he forever blames me for that. <laughs> so then we walk off stage and the crowd's like, now the crowd's like, you know, like there's boo and there's. Yeah, no, there's hostile. We yeah. got the, we got the satanic boo. Right. So then we walk off stage and that's when we realized that not only do we not have any security that our dress in order to get to our dressing room and whatever we were, the Oakland or normal dome, we had to walk in the concourse with the fans. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now me and my mouth you know have cashed a check we're not ready to you know cash so we're like peeking through the curtain and so we finally go okay go now so we run in the hallway to try to make it to the door and somebody goes there they are you know like 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 a a zombie movie right so that was show one show two or in chicago they come out you know we're at soundcheck guns pretty much has some of the same crew i actually saw them not too long ago at medicine we were going to the same guys you know 29 years later okay so guy comes out goes like look this is the special part of the stage. We got the special thing made. So if you, if, if you lose your mind, you decide you want to smash your guitar, don't smash the guitar there mm-hmm. or Axel will lose his mind. Okay, dude, got it, dude. So we have a terrible show in Chicago. Crowd booze again for 45 minutes. At one point, there's video of this. I'm standing in my amp and the guitar is just feeding back. I look like a sad little kid. <laughs> I jump off the amp. The amp hits me in the thigh, hits me, and I have a scar. I, I got cut open hard way. I'm bleeding. <laughs> Right. So then I get so mad. I'm like, I'm going to smash this guitar. I smash the guitar, but not in the spot. They, you know, make sure I don't smash the, I got enough consciousness to not smash, get Axel mad. I smash it in another part of the stage. So I think I'm good. Like you smash the guitar, you Chicago, my hometown. (laughs) We walk off the same guy comes and goes, what the did you do? I go, you told me not to smash. He goes, no, you smashed it on this other part. Now the ramp is broken. We don't have a replacement. Axel's going to be 
furious. Oh, shit. So I'm backstage in my dressing room. I'm like 25, like shaking, like, oh, God, I'm going to I pissed off your guns, right? They come in. It's cool. We found a piece. Axel's not mad. He said, don't worry about it, kid. All good. So I'm good. <laughs> so next day, we're on stage. We're sound checking because I'm so mad because we had such a bad gig. We're going to rehearse and we're going to show the crowd, you know? And the guy comes up and he walks past me. Same guy. He goes, gig's off. Or no, sh- sh- shut it down. Like, we were told we could have sound check. The guy goes, well, you can sound check all you want, but there ain't no show. What do you mean? It's like, Axel's on a plane back to LA. That's when he skipped because he was going to get arrested for the riot in St. Louis. Oh, wow. So he skipped the show. So they canceled the show, but we're on stage sound check. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we never played the third show. <laughs> <laughs> you got a bad uh, track record with Guns N' Roses. Then you have a whole tour book 25 years later. But this was my chance. This was, you know, it's, this was my redemption. Yeah. My redemption story. I was going to redeem myself. And, you know, I was, I was, you know, because, you know, of course, somebody's like, do you want to do the gig? I was like, yeah, I'd love to do the gig. 60,000 people in stadium guns. I'm like, they're going to boo again. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I just, I was, you know, I'm going to play it. We're going to have a good time. <laughs> well, dude, it's always great talking. Like you said, we have to do a pumpkins deep dive for sure. Anytime. Let's just leave it at this. What's the, in your opinion, NWA is up and running. What's the best match that you think you've had that you've seen in, in, in the company's history so far? I think the best match I've seen was at NWA 70, um, Cody versus Nick, the rematch. Oh, okay. That was like one of those like 25 minutes, lights out, both guys optimal, just the emotion, the moment. Sold out crowd at the fairgrounds. It's 1,200 people. Mm-hmm. We did the biggest gate the fairgrounds had ever done, which is amazing. That's great. Yeah. So it's just packed house. A lot of people at the show, just the vibe was great. Mm. Double J was helping promote the show. I mean, it was just had a lot of history in the building. Yeah. The special moments, you know, that's the, those are the kind of moments to keep me going when it's, when it gets a little uh, bleak. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, dude, congratulations uh, on all your success. And uh, I look forward to seeing where you guys go with it and uh, look forward to seeing you down the road somewhere. Okay. Best of luck. And thank you, Chris. Thanks, Billy. Cheers.